It's time to take cover, people, and save yourselves with great value home cover from Super Value Insurance. You'll get a 15% online discount and shopping vouchers with every policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 and our team will save the day without the drama. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. Home contents only policies excluded. This home insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Supervalue Financial Services DAC trading in Supervalue Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. In case you missed it. With Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. It's not changed that much, I don't think. I was going to say, I've been going pubs and restaurants for months now. Yeah. I don't feel like much has changed, to be honest. The fact that you just take your mask off now doesn't really bother me too much. We've been going, I say, all the local pubs around us have been... It doesn't feel like too much has changed. No, yeah, to me it doesn't. And then still, even today, Freedom Day, I've seen probably more people wearing masks now than, than, than not. So it's, to some people, it hasn't changed. You could, you've been able to dine indoors for a little while still. And what about wearing masks? You, you have a personal choice now. Will you still wear a mask? Like I said, I haven't worn a mask before. Unless I've been forced to wear a mask, I probably wouldn't have worn one yeah, so for, I, for ages. Unless I have to wear it to go in somewhere, then I won't be putting one on. The only thing that seems to have changed then is that nightclubs are open again. <laughs> Will you be rushing out to a nightclub? No, I don't, nightclub's not my scene anyway. But yeah, I'm no, a bit old, de- yeah. Definitely, de- even more so with that. As much as I say I haven't been wearing a mask, I've not been particularly careful with stuff, but I think going to a nightclub is probably not the safest of options, just to be a bit more... Yeah, but you'd go down Wembley and watch a football match, or the arse, if yeah. Emirates was open tomorrow, you'd go straight down there. Yeah, you? you would, but nightclubs, I think, because I don't know, I'd probably, maybe because of my age, I probably... Yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. the age more than anything. Yeah. Pubs for the Euros, we have f***ing arms yeah, around each other with 300 people. I'd go around a bar, I'd go down to a bar or something like that, just playing a bit of music, probably not a nightclub, but <laughs> same sort of thing really, isn't it? But yeah, but to be honest with you, no, like... It's just a preference, you don't yeah. want to go to a nightclub. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing to do with a mask. So, yeah. so it's not, you're not afraid of crowds? <laughs> no, no, like on a tube or something like that. But I think sometimes, it depends on how much alcohol you've got in your or other... <laughs> Other stuff, but on a tube or something, like you wouldn't necessarily want to be next to someone. But. I'm on the tube every day, and if I didn't have to wear a mask, I wouldn't bother, personally. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered what the future of work will look like? And how has automation changed the way we work? And when you talk about personal agency, effectively, does that really mean that we'll all be working on a you know, on a on a on a on a, on a per job basis, there'll be no more jobs for life. Um, we'll have to re- retrain, upskill, and that there'll be this constant evolution with very little security. Is, is that one of the landscapes we could be looking at? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there was a TED talk a couple of years ago that said we are going to see more change in the next twenty years than we have in the past two thousand. Now think about that. That's that's mind-blowing. If you do the math, depending on the amount of technology you use, that means a lifetime's worth of change every one to three years. Bobby, you know, many, when I said this a year or two ago, uh, many executives poo-pooed it. Oh, that's, that's not going to happen. And yet, look at what happened in the, in the span between February 20 or March 2020 and, and March 2021. We did all experience a lifetime's worth of change. Yeah. So what we just experienced is not going to be driven by the pandemic in the future, but it will be that kind of change constantly. And, and I suppose ultimately, are we looking for a better quality life? You know, and okay, technology uh, can influence it and all that sort of stuff, Bill. But ultimately, is it, should it be for the for the benefit of everybody that that these efficiencies, this technology, robotics, self drive cars, all that sort of stuff, that they they should improve our overall standing in life. Or right. should they? Well, they, they should overall. And if you look at us historically, medically, just for example, uh, uh, even with the pandemic, a lot fewer people are dying than, you know, for from disease than 100 years ago. In some ways, things are getting better. Our lives are getting better. 
But what's happening, major economists have predicted that we're going to see the disappearing of the middle class. There's going to be, you know, the upper 40 percent that has has no problem with all this. It's just going to keep uh, improving and things are going to keep getting better. But the middle class is going to keep disappearing and there's going to be the us in the lower 60 percent that it could be continuing struggling and the job security is going to go away and it will be project by project uh and you know even now there's jobs that i've applied for uh you know what part of what i do is i test things that are going on out in the outside world firsthand i interview people i ask them questions about how they're doing i also look at what's happening with the way artificial intelligence is now running uh the looking at resumes there is if you're applying to anything more than a a mom and pop grocery store on the corner uh no human being is looking at your resume and if you if you think about that, that's an efficiency equation that you know the computers are doing the sorting. But also, if those computers are not designed right, they will not favor you. And to test that, I've been applying, even though I have my own business, I've been applying for full time jobs just to test this system. And because I've had my luck? own, have any luck, Bill? Will anybody employ you? <laughs> Mostly, no, because I, because I've had my own business for thirty five years and I'm globally renowned and all that stuff. I haven't been job hopping. I don't haven't done that exact job. So the computer is spitting me back, even though I'm globally recognized as an expert in this field. So I'm testing the systems, and the problem is AI is is designed by human beings, and all our frail, frailties are built into that. So we're going to have computers more and more being our bosses or vetting our our CVs or looking at our work. And we're taking the human question out of it. And that's a big problem. Some startling insights there from futurist and writer Bill Jensen. From Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. On Thursday, Pat Kenny spoke to solicitor Sarah Grace about her hugely traumatising experience of our criminal justice system. You're a solicitor, so therefore you know your way around the legal system. And even so, um, you found huge trauma attached to the whole process. What were the the elements of it that you found were so wrong? Yeah, um, I am a, a solicitor, and so I wouldn't be a litigator, but I think I, I might know more than, say, your average person in the courts. And the whole process from beginning to end, I found impossible to navigate. So I don't know how people who have no legal experience did it. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, and I've addressed this in an open letter to uh, Minister Helen McEntee, our criminal justice system is just Dickensian. It's designed to make survivors jump through a shocking number of hoops before they even get to trial and as we all know the battle is far from one when you know when you get to trial um you know i'm all for for a fair trial and due process you know i'm a lawyer i understand the importance of the accused's rights um but the scales are so dramatically tipped in the accused's favor it's a wonder anyone has ever found guilty so to give you a few examples of that the one that people found the most shocking by far and nobody knew about this i didn't either is the disclosure of your counselling records as a victim. So for those people who don't know, a rape or a sexual violence victim, uh, their therapy notes will be taken and disclosed in evidence in trial. And the sole purpose of that evidence is to discredit the victim. It's not to back up what you're saying at all. They're trying to find some discrepancy in your notes. Um, And I didn't know about this when I went to therapy. It was announced to me kind of four or five months deep uh, in therapy. And I was told, yes, I could refuse to the release of these notes, but all that would do is delay the trial because the judge will ultimately force the release anyway. So your most uh, private hang on intimate a second. thought... Sarah, 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 this is insane. Yeah. Because here yeah. you go to therapy, and I would have thought there is that uh, oath of confidentiality between therapist yep. and uh, a subject. In the same way as you as a solicitor, uh, you have complete client confidentiality in terms of your discussions Absolutely, with your client. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly a judge can come along and says, well, let's hear what she had to say in that private session with her therapist. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is crazy. Now, what they do is they say they redact certain parts of the notes that are, I quote, not relevant to the, you know, the trial. 
um, I would not know what would be redacted, what wouldn't be. And, you know, I was one of the lucky ones in that I didn't know my attacker, but most survivors are assaulted or attacked by someone that they know. And so, you know, you could have extremely personal information in there, say someone is adopted and doesn't want people to know, or you just don't want, you know, the assaulter to know how he's made you feel. And he gets to read that. And it's not just him or her. It's his entire defense team, the entire prosecution team and the judge. So, you know, it's as you said, Pat, like it's your most private, intimate thoughts. You think you are in the most confidential setting. You're opening up about, about, you know, the most harrowing trauma that has happened to you. And you are just trying to pick up the pieces and move on. And then it is told to you, actually, you know, the person who did this to you is going to get to read all of this and it's going to be used against you. That's the worst of it. Um, And, you know, the accused counselling records are strictly off limits in the trial, as they should be. But what baffles me is why are we affording rights to the accused that we're not reciprocating for the highly vulnerable victims? That just doesn't make sense to me. And it's a huge deterrent to people seeking justice. So what happens is survivors will either not get therapy and delay three years to make sure those notes won't be used against them or they just won't prosecute. So so in a situation where you have a perpetrator who's had to go through therapy and, uh, you know, there, there might be some defence in that regard that he's not uh, well, etc., etc. But if that uh, perpetrator, and I'm not talking about your case, but if the perpetrator had, for example, rape fantasies, which that uh, person shared with their therapist, uh, and then they went on to commit rape, that evidence from their therapist would not be admissible Whereas everything, your trauma could be, or the trauma of the victim, because we're not talking specifically about your case yeah. uh, as I generalise, exactly, yeah. um, that, that the trauma of the victim could be exposed in open court. This is yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's just, it's just shocking. And I mean, as we all know, Ireland's a very small country. You know, people who don't choose to waive their anonymity like I did are still recognised because it's reported in, in you know, the, the court reporters will get their hands on anything that's said in court and they can report on it without mentioning you. But people know who it is. So there's just absolutely no privacy there. And in that same vein, Pat, they can also dig into the victim's sexual past and history in certain cases. As if that proves something as to this completely unrelated incident. Mm. Um, but you can't do that for the accused. So you can't bring up his past or her past offences, you know, past crimes that have been committed. In my own case, um, he had committed two other burglaries before breaking into my apartment. And we weren't even allowed to mention those because, you know, that would, he's innocent until proven guilty. You know, the jury can't know um, that he had committed these other crimes. Um, so you can't bring up all these things about the accused. You can bring up the victim's sexual past. And <laughs> the, the accused also can have a positive character reference. And the victim doesn't. So it's this complete double standard that women it's should crazy. be virtuous <laughs> or they're asking for it. Like, it's primitive. <laughs> and in Australia and the USA, who have, you know, very similar laws to ours, they have a thing called the rape shield laws. And it is absolutely forbidden to ask a victim about his or her or their sexual past. It has nothing to do with this particular incident of consent. The Courageous Sarah Grace from The Pat Kenny Show. My name is Denise Rudin and I live in Greystones. We have a holiday home here in British Bay. And I suppose when I first heard about it, I thought, oh yeah, that's great, like wind turbines, that's green energy, that's sustainable, and who can argue with that? But then I realised the ramifications that it might have for the environment. And it's not just here in British Bay, it's likely to have an impact all the way along the coast, down as far as Court Town and all of the other beaches in between. I suppose you don't have to be a marine biologist to know that any small change that you make in a marine environment can have massive impact. And it's just such a wonderful resource that we have here. I didn't want to admit it, but since you did, Henry, I, like you, didn't. I had never been to British Bay until I was an adult. I've only been to British Bay recently on my (laughs) campervan tour. I'd never been here before. Yeah, and when my husband brought me here the very first time, he still slags me about it. I came over the dunes and I went, who knew? (laughs) And it's just amazing that we have beaches like this here in Ireland and we really should be more careful about keeping them. My name is William Harry. I'm a local resident and, and been down in British Bay area for years and years. Because of our concerns, we have set up an organisation called Southeast Coastal Protection Alliance and we have a website, sccpa.ie. I'm Jasmine Harry. 
I'm holidaying down here for the last 30 years. I have nine grandchildren and I'm worried that the beaches mightn't be here for them. And if the beaches aren't here with nice sand as we have now, they won't be interested in coming down anymore. So we're here amongst the sand dunes on Britta's Bay. We can see wind turbines in the very distance that have been there for a number of years. We can hear kids playing, there's kayaking, there's surfing, there's sailing. We're concerned that it will be lost. What we want to happen is for these to be put out onto floating platforms further out to sea. Uh, that way we'll save the sandbanks because we're concerned that if you solve one environmental issue you'll cause a far worse one by the decimation of the beaches. What's your view on wind farms coming to Arklow? Sound, yeah. A lot of jobs to go around there now. Well, I would welcome it. Employment's always good, but I think for uh, for the refurb of the dock and everything else, because there's going to be, obviously there's going to be vessels in there that's going to bring the guys out for construction and also to uh, maintain it after it's done. I'm Louise Glennon. I'm Head of External Affairs for SSE Renewables Ireland. Louise, I've travelled from British Bay to Arklow and we're here at the harbour um, and behind us, this is where SSC Renewables are going to have a base. Yeah, so here we're going to build our operations and maintenance facility. Um, we want to construct Arklow Bank Wind Park Phase 2 um, to meet the government target of 1 gigawatt of offshore wind for 2025. So that's a lot of electricity? That's a lot of electricity, yeah. Arklow Bank uh, Wind Park will be able to power approximately 450,000 homes a year um, if it's constructed. What do you say to these uh, residents and these holidaymakers who don't want uh, the wind farms. In the main, we've heard positives. We have heard concerns about construction impact, um, which are all very valid. Um, and then we have heard other concerns more recently about um, the concerns about the long-term impact. In terms of environmental impact, it is not in our interest to have a negative impact on the, the local environment. Um, we've done an extensive environmental impact assessment report um, and that has, been, has considered uh, issues like coastal erosion, for example, and we've submitted that to the Department of housing, heritage and local government for their consideration. But sustainability is a core value um, for SSE and not only a value but it's a core pillar of our strategic plan um, and you know all of our goals are aligned with the sustainable development goals and the destruction of the local environment is absolutely runs contrary to that. Uh, it's not in our interest to cause any destruction and perhaps you know it may actually have um, s- some benefits to the local um, erosion issue. The wind farm that we're proposing to develop is uh, the, the location is between 6 and 13 kilometres from shore. Our lease area is is that lease area. So there's a red line boundary around um, around the area that's in which we're exploring. So that's that's where we have to build, um, hopefully. If looking at uh, proposed sites in the future, you know, of course you could build further out. I suppose there's a few things to think about when choosing a, a wind farm site um, offshore. That is water depths. The fixed turbines cannot be used in deeper waters, so you'd be required to use floating wind technology. For SSE, uh, we I suppose we we would need to see further use of, of uh, further deployment of floating wind technology before we'd be absolutely confident um, about, about using it ourselves. The target that we're working towards for our Bank Wind Park is 2025. If we want to deliver that one gigawatt by that time, um, then, then we would need to use fixed turbine technology. So the deeper we would go, then uh, the, the less appropriate fixed turbine technology would be. Henry McKean reporting for News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. The woman during it all is producing oxytocin, and this is making her much feel a, a much stronger sense of connection with exactly with, her, with, with this man she's knocking boots with. But the yeah. whole time that they're at it like rabbits, he <laughs> is he's just getting floods of dopamine, and that means that he can't produce this oxytocin. So he's really enjoying himself, but he's not necessarily growing any closer to the woman in his life. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah, and it also makes an awful lot of sense why an awful lot of women will complain. They can't understand why they keep falling in love with these players because, you know, we do have the Tinder generation, and I've met a lot of teenagers think, well, if the guys can do it, so can I. Unfortunately, they can't because they can't. They're, believe it or not, the oxytocin on the male, and this is the importance of not having sex with them at the start of a relationship. The oxytocin on the male 
all right, promotes fidelity because the effect on him it's that the it makes males view their partners as more attractive than other females. Yeah, well, I'm, and I'm, also, hold on, I'm, hold on, and I'm starting to feel sorry now for this <laughs> male first year college student who who's not going to be getting any action because because <laughs> well, all the women are listening to Enda Murphy and Enda said no, 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 don't don't give them what they want, don't give them what they want, keep them on the long finger, keep. Keep dragging him along, no. and he and 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 he'll he'll be starved of dopamine. But all that oxytocin means he'll fall in love with you. And the worst thing she can do is to let him make all the first moves because a lot I've you know like kind of I know an awful lot of women. I'd meet an awful lot of women, and they would say, "Oh, listen, I can't meet a guy." And I said, "Well, who are you trying to meet?" And he says, "Well, you know." I said, "Do you have male friends?" And they say, "Yeah, I do have male friends." And I says, "Okay." But, you know, are any of those interesting? He says, yeah, some of them are nice, but they're not making any move. And I says, yeah, they're the guys who are bonding with you. They actually are, you know, she thinks that they should bond with me by actually kind of trying to have sex with me. They don't. The nice guys aren't trying to have sex with you. The nice guys want to be friends with you first. They want to bond with you. And then the sex happens somewhere down the line. But does it, though, if you can get up in the friend zone? Well, you can end up in the friend zone, but where? How do you get from the friend zone into the lover zone? See, if you wait for the, a if movie, the woman wait, a dinner, well, I don't know. All, all the way. If listen, when a woman is ready, she won't be long about telling the guy and letting him know that she's actually ready. But if she's waiting for him to make all the first moves, then the only ones who will will be the players. Because the guys who you want to bond with, who are life partners, are not the players. They're the ones who are usually more sensitive. They're usually a bit shy. They're usually more, much more respectful of you. They don't want you to think that they just want to have sex with you. Okay. They actually want to bond with you, not just have sex. So you have to give them, if they're bonding with you and if you're in the friend zone, you have to give them an inkling that you're actually interested. Because they're terrified to make the first move because they'll lose what it is they already have. Okay, so you, you, you as the female might have to make the first move, grab the bull by the horns. Well, you don't necessarily have to grab it by the horns, but there are plenty of ways of actually maybe letting the guy know, all right, that you are interested in taking this a bit further. Because you can get, remember, oxytocin is, is, is secreted in the, by non-sexual intimacy in the mm. male. So the non-sexual intimacy, it could be a simple touch. It could be a simple look. But one interesting thing, and this is for all of us who are married, all right? When a woman has sex, 34 centers of her brain are activated. We only have about three or four. Women have 34. And it just happens that those 34 centers of our brain are the same parts of our brain that are activated when she eats chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> So if a woman ever says to you that she prefers chocolate to sex, she's actually been completely honest with you. It's the same parts of her brain that actually get triggered. So understanding both of these things. So, you know, her because if a woman is going out and she's just having casual sex, if you want to do it, I'm not here to pontificate and I'm not here to shove anybody's beliefs down their throat kind of thing. But her body can't actually distinguish between whether the person they're having a casual fling with or having sex with is a casual fling or marriage material. Oxytocin has been released in both ways. So, you know, when while it helps her bond with her partner, it's also the reason she may feel miserable when short term relationships end. Whereas on the other hand, instead of the surge of bonding hormone, that oxytocin, they get the surge of dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone. So he's either having sex or bonding, but he's not doing both. So he can have sex and not bond, but it's much more difficult for her to do that. So he's playing the field and she can't understand why she keeps falling in love with the players. So understanding that, because an awful lot of people and an awful lot of guys, you know, come on, I was a teenager myself, who think... They were a player too, were you? (laughs) I'll take the Fifth Amendment on that one, Kieran. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) as I'm sure you will as well, all right? But, you know... (laughs) But as it happens, you know, when you go out, you think, all right, you know, like kind of because this is the way I would instinctively just want to act. I think, well, that's the way she wants to act when, in fact, it's completely different because our brains are completely wired differently to ourselves, you know. So like kind of so understanding that when you go out 
is that what are you looking for if you just want to go out on dates if you want to do this then fine you know go out and play the field that's you know that's what we're supposed to do as adolescents we're supposed to go out have lots of different friendships do you understand lots of different experiences and that's how you find yourself but if you're having yeah. sex with them hoping that he'll bond with you he's not every time you have sex with them you're preventing him from bonding with you so the ones who are bonding with you are the ones who have the non-sexual intimacy with and they're the ones you want to look for Kieran Cuddihy there from the hard shoulder Welcome to the Irish Naval Base here in Hall Boland, County Cork. This is the home port for our nine ships that we have in, uh, as a fleet, coastal patrol vessels to offshore patrol vessels. This is the main uh, area and island where we uh, carry out our uh, refuelling point where we're standing right now, um, the Isle Wharf itself, just uh, looking across the water to Cove. We do all our training mainly here on the base itself. Here at the Irish Naval Base, service members are training in a number of different roles. The Navy works on a range of missions, from search and rescue to overseas peace operations. The Defence Forces are recruiting new members, and in particular for the Naval Service. I spoke with some of those who have joined to hear how the experience has been for them. My name is Lieutenant Patrick McGovern. I'm an operations officer with the Naval Service and I'm currently working from the recruitment section. I joined the Navy in 2013. started off as a cadet, so I spent two years with the Naval Service before being commissioned in 2015. In 2014 I started a degree with the Navy in nautical science in the National Maritime College of Ireland. And that went on for another three years. And then when I was finished my uh, studies there, I joined the L.E. George Bernard Shaw as a navigation officer. So that was my first appointment as a qualified officer with the Naval Service. Previously, I used to work in outdoor education. So working at sea attracted me, but also some sort of an active job where I'd have a lot of variety in the role, you know. Um, I always had an interest in the military. I applied for the Navy uh, because I thought I saw it as a career for myself. Or previous jobs I was doing were the more short-term. Hi, uh, my name's Aileen Hanna, and I'm a PO chef in the Naval Service. So I'm coming up upon my 19th year in the service. I'm born and bred from Cove. I did my leave insert. I was thinking, like any 17-year-old would do, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I had a huge interest in cooking. My family had a tradition of joining the Naval Service. I found out that I could be a chef here in the service, so that's the route I took. And Cove, your hometown, it's only across the water here, but you've travelled around the world through your work? Yeah, I've seen loads of fantastic places. I've been to the Mediterranean, I've been to the Black Sea, I've walked in Patrick's Day parades all around the world, uh, things that I would have never got to do before I joined the service. Working in an environment that would have more men than women, is there challenges when you're out at sea? Yeah, of course there's challenges and um, I suppose women in the service is still relatively new. I think the first females to join the service came in in either 95 or 96. But we're progressing every day and I think it's definitely, it would be a fantastic thing for any woman, to, any young woman to think about coming doing. My name is Leading Seaman Leon Dunn. I'm with the Naval Service now just shy of eight years. I joined in September in 2013. It's given me a great career path and opportunity to uh, expand my knowledge not alone by the sea itself, but uh, just uh, in the military. I think the, the Navy and even the Defence Force as a whole is very pride yourself on structure, but no two days are the same. So you might have, have a kind of a general daily routine, but it's never, uh, it's never fulfilled by the same things always uh, day in and day out, you know. My role uh, would be as a leading gunner out on a, a ship, it's mainly to take care of maintenance of the weaponry on board, the main armament itself and primary and secondary armament, even the small arms itself, uh, right down to the pistols. A lot of responsibility, so... It can be a lot of responsibility, yeah, a lot of bookkeeping and a lot of it making sure that everything's kept right so that you know, you're fully functional to be able to do your job at sea and ashore. And what was it that attracted you first day? What attracted me, maybe I wanted a little bit of a difference in, uh, in my life. I'm from County Leash, you see, so, uh, you know, it's uh, surrounded by counties alone, but that don't even touch the sea, so you might think, uh, what's, what am I down here for? What drove me down here? But uh, it was probably a sense of adventure that, uh, I've, that I think I needed uh, in my life at the time. I was young when I was joining, so, um, yeah, I feel that um, to do something uh, with a bit of structure uh, on a daily basis... I felt it's what I, what I got. That's certainly what I've received after joining here. Much more than a job or a career. Like it's a lifestyle. And look, there's no smoke and mirrors here. It's a, the job. It's in itself. It's not an easy job. You know, kind of way. It's not any walk in the park. Anybody who really wants themselves a, the correct opportunity to uh, express a, an adventurous side to themselves, they're really going to get the opportunity to do it here. Patrick, Aileen, and Leon are all long-term members of the Navy who have worked in different positions all around the world. 
One thing for certain about joining any section of the Defence Forces is that it's a way of life, not just a job, but a lifestyle choice. So how does that affect those working in the Navy? And how have they found the adjustment? So I suppose some of the main things is there's a lot of variety in the job. Your job is changing all the time, especially when you're with a ship. One day you can be involved with you know fishery boardings, which make up a good bit of our work. Next day you could be called to do a search and rescue, and that could be in any part of the country. At one stage when I was on the George Bernard Shaw, we were involved in one of the initial COVID-19 testing centres on the Keys up in Dublin. We were up there at short notice and we were setting up the testing centre within a couple of days of being not- not- notified about, about the job. You know, So your job can change a lot. And when I, ca- when I came ashore from me being at sea with the ship, I moved into kind of a, a HR kind of position. So working uh, in recruitment now with the Naval Service. So I went into a, a new challenge now, a different job now. What I love about the service is the sense of community and loyalty that we have within it. You know, you, you're going to get trained up, you're going to... Be, you're going to choose your specific divisions or type of job that you want to fulfil within the service but what's, what keeps me here and what keeps me loving my job every day is the community aspect and the sense of belonging Josh Crosby reporting for the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy like, I, I don't know, I don't have kids but I imagine is it, is it just pride? I mean, it could be. There's a benign pride. And it's interesting, Andrea, because if I share anything about my own children, um, it gets far more traction than perhaps, you know, information about a webinar that's coming up or uh, on the column. So kids get clicks, you know, that that's that's necessarily the issue. And (laughs) and and from the point of view of, you know, um, and I, I suppose there's a kind of a like there's there's all of us who seem to be doing something for the right reasons may not be. And I, I count myself in this. Like, for example, the, the, I mentioned the ice bucket challenge. You know, we yeah. did that a number of years ago. And, you know, was the reason we did that because we had this really deep need to kind of raise money for MLS? Or was it because we wanted to do a funny video of ourselves? Do you know what I mean? From the point of view of that. And, you know, once you're kind of honest with your motivations behind it or like in 2012 I had this dreadful handlebar moustache that I sported for a few weeks for Movember and it wasn't necessarily that I was completely focused on raising money for men's health it was more I wondered what that would look like and it kind of gave me excuse to do it and so you know the the reasons why we do things you know when we share them online or when there's an online component, it does change our engagement with it. If you Mm. do a 5k run and you don't share it with anyone, or if you do a 5k run and put it up on your social network that Andrea is just after doing a 5k run and you've hundred people saying, well done, you're amazing. You're brilliant. You're fantastic. You're great. Yeah. That's the other one. (laughs) And, and, And again, that stuff is important to us. And I, I know 90% of people say, I don't care about the likes. It doesn't make a difference. They it do. absolutely does. It absolutely does. And, you know, and what, what, what we're at risk of doing is, uh, and I, I would be a strong advocate against parental guilt. Um, and if you are kind of that parent who doesn't have, like I, I'm a parent myself. And if I'm looking at, you know, an, a, a nine-year-old who's kind of, winning black belts in taekwondo and i'm looking at my own nine-year-old and saying you're still wearing velcro shoes you can't tie your laces like it's it does put me under pressure do you know what i mean to why aren't you the way they are and i i suppose it's almost showing a a, a kind of an awareness of what is the impact of that on other people when we share so much about the achievements of our own child and maybe if you have a child with special needs or who's not maybe hitting those milestones in the same way how does that feel when you're scrolling through your Instagram and seeing uh, the, the achievements of others. But it's, it's not that it's, it's right or wrong. It's just about being sensitive to it. And mm. the other thing is, and the second part of the column next week is, deals with the kind of the practical piece about surrendering, surrendering the ownership of that image. You know, when you post it up, you, you no longer own it and it can be used for any purposes. And there are lots of unfortunate cases of children's images being used for nefarious purposes. And so um, we have to also be aware of that. And But if you want to share it and you're informed about it, uh, then go by all means do it. And I, I do it myself. Um, but it's more about kind of, again, being honest with ourselves about what we're doing it, why we're doing it and what impact it might have. Is there ever a concern, Coleman, that, you know, y- you you end up looking for so much validation from social media that parents aren't spending that time or attention with their kids? Or is that a sort of a ridiculous argument? No, it's not. I mean, the, the, the issue around social media capture is that um, the capturing of the event and the sharing of the event does run the risk of 
being more important than the event itself. So from the point of view, there's a there was a few years ago, there was a lot of um, selfie related deaths, you know, people taking these selfies in really difficult positions or, you know, dangerous positions and, and having accidents as it was because what they were doing was trying to create a viralness to it. So the amount that something gets traction is the measure of its goodness or badness, you know, or, or not goodness. So if you put an image up and it gets 150 likes in 10 minutes and you put another image up that gets 10 likes in two hours, does that mean that even though you prefer one over the other, the mob decides for you which is better? Do you know what I mean? And if you're taping your children opening their Sandy, Sandy presents through your phone, can you actually be in the room when the phone is in between you and your child while you're trying to capture this moment? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. You know, and, and I've been at school plays where you're trying to dodge behind big iPads and things that are being shone up there. And you're kind of saying, how can you even be taking this in when you're trying to capture it at the same time? But the, the thing is, Andrea, we've moved from being consumers of of media to producers of media. Yeah, so well, we've moved from. Is. Yeah. And we've moved from the audience to the actor on the stage. And that means that the currency and traction, validation and recognition is important to us. And uh, we, we just have to be so careful that that doesn't become the most important mm. part than the actual meaningfulness of the engagement itself. Some sound advice, sir, from child and adolescent psychotherapist Dr. Coleman Nocter from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. The secret, um, well... I never do this, but I had a burger for four straight days, so my body's probably feeling it. Um, I know my body's feeling it. Um, but, I, you know, I think I just enjoy these moments, and I talk about it so much that we love what we do, um, and you have to embrace it. You know, you have to be in, excited about these opportunities, and that's how I looked at it today, especially coming down the stretch, was I'm excited. And um, to have the Claire Jug right here uh, in my possession for a year, I believe, uh, I'm excited to have it. <laughs> the Golf Weekly Review Pod is up. It was recorded last night, fresh after Morikawa's win. So that is waiting for you. Get over to Patreon or have a look on the OTBSports.com website and look for Golf Weekly, and you'll find it. Uh, this kid's awesome. This kid is scary. 24 years of age, won the USPGA on his debut at that tournament, and here on his Open debut has won the Open. And as I said at the top, left speed Ram. Wustazen and a bunch of others in his wake. Uh, precision iron play like you wouldn't believe. He is uh, he has very quickly cemented himself as the best iron player in the world and he's not short off the tee by any means but he's again pure precision as a ball striker. There were question marks over his putting and he's changed his grip on a couple of occasions and he is liable to miss a couple of short ones that make you kind of squeeze your sphincter a touch and feel very uncomfortable uh, but there wasn't a hint of that yesterday in particular and he, some outrageous up and downs as well brilliant short game he's 24 now he'll be comp- uh, comp- comp- competitive excuse me for the next 20 years he's on two majors I know Adrian one of the questions doing the rounds in uh, golfing circles last night was with Rory on four majors and Morikawa on two who ends up at the end of their careers with the most majors and the hot money at the moment is very much in Morikawa he is serious one of the comment was it Paul McGinley was making the point afterwards I can't quite remember actually who it was but they were saying that like you know when the fame comes on and the success comes on and the money comes on it was it seemed to me that they were directly referencing McElroy like what sort of an impact that has on him because at the minute for all the reasons you said and you know way more about it that uh, you would think that there's nothing to stop him um, I did do you know I, the, when the tournament was going on yesterday and you know that the uh, champion golfer of the year it just struck me yesterday what a pompous title it is uh, and uh, he managed to butcher it in the in his post uh, post round his post win acceptance speech. What did he call it? The champ. I'm delighted to be named the championship golfer of the year, whatever it was. Yeah. I thought it was a fitting. Uh, yeah, you know, the Royal ancient Blazers spitting up their soup as they watched uh, yeah. up the road. I'm sure. Yeah. So his speech. I wasn't sure about his speech. It was either very very good or a little bit odd. Um, I would go with the latter, John. I think, I think, like, I think it may have been. I think it may have been. Uh, it was like some fridge magnet wisdom about gratitude. But then again, it was heartfelt. I can't make up my mind. It's probably been... We're, we're cynical old men here. That's what we are. Um, but yeah, I guess it's easy for the 24-year-old with two majors to tell yeah. us all to be thankful. So um, he's uh, in an awesome spot. Going to be really interesting to watch where he goes now. Joe Malloy and Adrian Barry from... The news round on Off The Ball. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.
On Thursday, Sean Moncree spoke to psychologist and author Charles Fernie Howe about the voices within. And it got really interesting. So then, given that it's a dialogue, what does that say about us as unitary beings? Well, this is where it starts to get really interesting philosophically in terms of linguistics, in terms of how language is supposed to work. I mean, the whole idea of talking to yourself to tell yourself something just doesn't compute, you know, in, in a lot of philosophy, a lot of the way that we understand how language works. So it's really, it's really radical, I think. And I think it points to the idea that we are, if you like, multiple selves. We're made up of different um, units. We're made up of different processes in interaction. And we are divisible, but we also we, we kind of generally cohere. We generally come together as one, as one being. But we're made up of all these different um, parts. Uh, and I suppose that's in an, in an interior sense. We probably project ourselves to the world as one person, but we're different people in different situations. For instance, I think that's right. We take on different roles in the world, and we take on different roles for ourselves. And we really can get somewhere by putting a question to ourselves and then taking another perspective on what we've just said, still within the boundaries of the self, if you like, you know, it's mm. still us doing the work, but we can have that conversation with ourselves and take ourselves somewhere that we wouldn't be able to do if we were just churning out this monologue. Yeah. And, then, and then we can bring other people into those internal conversations as well. So I talk to people who regularly have conversations with people who aren't there, people who are perhaps no longer alive, people who are imaginary, fictional characters, and of course, spiritual beings. Yes, or you can, you know, replay arguments you've had with people, except this time you really stick it to them and and show them the error of their ways. So you do that as well, Sean. That's yes, good to hear. <laughs> absolutely. I I I beat everyone uh, who who has already <laughs> beaten me. The difference, though, I would imagine between saying it out loud is is that I suppose to a degree it's restricted by words, whereas if you're just thinking it, you don't really need all the words. Would that be the case? I think that is that's spot on, in fact. I think a lot of the time what we're doing silently in our heads is something much more compressed or condensed relative to the kind of conversation that you and I are having now. If you could listen into somebody else's head, you'd probably hear something that was kind of very compressed note form, um, com- stripped down, if you like, you know, where almost all of the stuff that goes with language, you know, the, the, the word endings and the, you know, the, the tone of the accent and so on are taken away and you've just got something very minimal and that I think means that we can cover more ground in our inner speech because it's so compressed and condensed but sometimes we're doing something I think it's particularly when things get difficult when we're under some sort of stress or challenge those internal compressed conversations might turn into something that's more expanded and you really have that sense like you you were saying of replaying that argument and you're going you know you, you, you're doing you're doing it blow for blow for blow for blow you know you're, you're expanding all the sentences you're, you're saying you're talking to yourself in full sentences mm. and then when things get even tougher I think often we start taking it outside and doing the same kind of thing that we used to do when we were kids saying it out loud again and having that conversation with ourselves out loud yeah the, 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 oftentimes if you see people from you know say walking down the street uh, uh, talking out loud it looks like they might be having an argument with someone I mean uh, and and I, no, normally, I, maybe it's just a social convention, but one would think, oh, maybe that person has some mental health issues. Is that necessarily the case? Not at all. I think talking to yourself is absolutely normal. I think it's we do it because it's useful. It helps us in all sorts of ways. It's also a bit of fun. It's a bit of company. Mm. You know, and there's been, I think you're right to say that there's a kind of cultural stigma about it. You know, we have this saying, talking to yourself is the first sign of madness. I think nothing could be further from the truth. But you can kind of see where it might have come from. There's all sorts of social pressures to keep it inside. Uh, there are social, you know, constraints on what we can what we can do out loud. And it's also probably quite wise to keep a lot of your thinking to yourself <laughs> rather than revealing your plans. <laughs> that to is the next true. Uh, that, that is true. So, in the form of when we're doing it internally, whether it's it's internal conversation, what's the difference between that and thinking? Well, thinking is a tricky, a tricky old concept, and people are often, usually, I think, pretty vague about what they actually mean by that. If thinking is taken to refer to any kind of intelligence, then yeah, you get it covers a huge amount. It covers everything the, the conscious mind does. 
But I think a lot of the things that we we take to be thinking uh, heavily uh, heavily involve language or whatever language we we ourselves use. You know, there are different kinds of language, of course. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the time when we talk about thinking, we talk about something verbal. That's not to say that you can't be intelligent without language. You absolutely can. And, you know, babies show it and animals show it. And all sorts of, all sorts of you know, beings show the, the fact that you can be intelligent without using words. But I think words give you something special. I think when you think in words, you can go a little bit further than you might otherwise have been able to do. At least that seems to work for a lot of people. And that's mm. why we do it, because it's useful. Such fascinating research there from psychologist and author Charles Fernie Howe from Moncrief. The Pickets on Joe Dolan concerts we will come back to because that is a fascinating and very, very unexpected turn uh, in this whole thing. But it, it probably is worth saying, though, that by the time that Mandela came here, the anti-apartheid movement in Ireland was already not just a few years, but rather decades old. Which is incredible. The Irish anti-apartheid movement uh, did not begin with, with the courage of a Dunstores cashier in 1984, but two decades uh, earlier in the 1960s with the birth of the Irish anti-apartheid movement and its founder, uh, Kadir Asimil. Great character. Mm. Uh, many listeners will probably remember him personally. He joined the staff of the Law School at Trinity College in 1964, spent 27 years at the university uh, lecturing students who'd go on to do great things mm. like, you know, take up Oris and Uchtaran. But Asimil had been recommended for the Trinity College position by Conor Cruz O'Brien, with whom he would later clash, as we'll hear in this slot, mm. in quite spectacular style. And now, talk to us a little bit more about Kadar Asma because he managed to win the support of people from right across the political spectrum he, during his, his 27 years in Ireland, including a young Bertie O'Hearn. Yeah, Kadar Asma was a brilliant political operator and he understands that you know, the anti-apartheid movement in Ireland, it might, have, it might have some natural and obvious political allies, like the civil rights movement in the North, but that's not enough. You know, you need to win as many people as you can to the cause. Mm. Uh, so he wins you know, wide support uh, across whole spectrums of Irish public life. And in the words of one, one great historian, his intention was that like in Britain, the Irish anti-apartheid movement should aim to acquire broad appeal, led as much as possible by well-known local per- personalities. And I love this line. The small scale and social intimacy of Ireland's public life worked to his advantage. You know, Ireland, is, <laughs> Ireland is a village. You're never more than two yeah. handshakes away from anyone in yeah. normal times. So Bertie O'Hearn, uh, a young Fianna Fáil councillor, joins the movement. A young Mary Robinson, who he'd lectured uh, in Trinity College, uh, and Garrett Fitzgerald. And eventually, you, you can't be friends with everyone, as, as, as he learns. Mm. You know, people start to fall out within the broad movement. Garrett leaves it, for example, uh, when he refuses to deny membership to, to Sinn Féin. But he's trying to bring in the entire spectrum, if you will, of Irish public life, from mm. actors like Cyril Cusack to a young Mary Robinson. Now, there's been uh, some aspects of this, actually, particularly given the the, uh, the Lions tour at the moment, which have been reanimated on television. There are a few different visits of the Springboks, the South African rugby team, which gives people the chance to demonstrate the support of the uh, Irish and the apartheid movement. Uh, but, of course, famously, it wasn't enough to actually stop some of the games from going ahead. No, the box arrived in Ireland in, in January. 1970 and, and they'd been here before that was the thing but now there's an anti-apartheid movement which can kind of rally against mm. the game and they'd just been on a two-month tour of Britain there was massive scenes of protest pretty much everywhere they went uh, a young Gordon Brown got himself arrested uh, well. in Edinburgh and the IRFU is in a really tough position after after watching all of this happen uh, in Britain but they made their view clear they said you know cultural and sporting relations are the last links that should be broken with a country whose laws and policies incur condemnation this game in Lansdowne Road goes ahead it's an 8-8 draw in front of a really small attendance played behind barbed wire mm. uh, erected to prevent protesters from getting onto the pitch but while they didn't stop the game you know, the Irish anti-apartheid movement did succeed in, in winning plenty of airtime. And the banners are brilliant. There's one banner that appears the next day in the front of one of the papers, Boxamock. <laughs> so what he'd done is he'd at least brought public consciousness, if mm. you will, uh, to the to the anti-apartheid movement. Well, it also, even with uh, half a century's remove, it just seems like a masterful PR that you managed to uh, hijack an event which still does go ahead, but the event itself almost becomes secondary to the protests that surround it. So from, from that sense, maybe it was kind of better for the movement um, overall. Um, you mentioned uh, some pickets at a Joe show, uh, unlikely showdowns concerning Joe Dolan. Explain to us why exactly Joe Dolan uh, was being targeted. And this here. pains me because believe it or not, I'm actually I'm a great fan of Joe Dolan's uh, music. I love Joe Dolan and Morrissey and they're both shrouded in controversy it would seem <laughs> this, this was more, that's, more that's a sequence of words that nobody <laughs> well, in the history of the English language has ever said before <laughs> Marcy used to come on stage The Good Looking Woman by Joe Dolan which I thought was incredible the worlds the two worlds meet but you know South African oh, representatives like rugby players you know, coming to Ireland that, that was one thing but then you had to think what about the reverse you know what about Irish talent going to 
South Africa. So you end up with a massive financial incentive to go and play gigs there because very mm. few people will. So Foster and Allen go over, Phil Coulter goes over, uh, and Joe Dolan. But Joe's absolutely enormous uh, in South Africa. And to be honest, I mean, he's pretty big everywhere. Yeah. You know, Joe Dolan has yeah. five number ones uh, in South Africa. He also regularly performs in the Soviet Union, where he's also <laughs> very, very popular. And you see the uh, the the Russian editions of, of, of Joe's singles popping up all the time on, on, on eBay. But he later tells a biographer, he says, to be honest, when I went there, I was thick. <laughs> I, knew nothing, I knew nothing about apartheid. I had records in the charts over there, and I was thinking of my career. I went to South Africa. Uh, for music mm. but you end up with Joe Dolan gigs in Dublin being picketed by the, the Irish anti-apartheid movement and Joe's name and, and the other names appear in a UN blacklist of bands and acts who played in South Africa so the pressure is really really building mm. uh, in Ireland around these things Can I just get you to rewind there about 45 seconds and can you just state again for the record that Joe Dolan has some singles in Russian that just show up from time to time <laughs> Well they're, they're not in Russian but the, the labels oh, and yeah. everything else oh, they're, are in they're in the language and they yeah. were, they, he had a number of number one hits in, in the Soviet Union, which to me is incredible. His story in an author, Donald Fallon, from On the Record with Gavin Riley. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now some Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. I'd say my favourite emoji is probably the purple demon emoji and the uh, aubergine one. Picture of a cake if um, we're sending a present to anybody. And how old are you? How old am I? 76. Do emojis make you a better or worse communicator? A better one. The thumbs up one is quite good and I enjoy um, if somebody is out skating, getting a skating one. And you would um, understand them? Would you ever get lost by them? Oh, I could, very easily. (laughs) Sometimes we look for ages to find the ones we want, a flag of Spain or a flag of um, Italy or something like that. You're 17, what's your most popular emoji? Probably the laughy face. The laughy face. And is that laughing with the tears coming out yeah, or which one? It. The one with the tears coming out. And does that mean this is absolutely hilarious? It does, yeah. It means very funny. It means very funny. Yeah. I'm from Wicklow Town. And would that be a popular one in Wicklow Town? It would, yeah. It'd be very popular. What's your favourite emoji? Uh, the laughing emoji and the one who winks with the eye. You like a wink emoji? Yes. But I would say a wink emoji was flirting, no? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. And are you a flirt? Yes, of course. Single woman, why not? <laughs> Maybe the winky one. Oh, yeah. And what cheeky. does winky, winky mean? She's a like, cheeky girl. <laughs> she's a cheeky girl. Maybe the love heart, because I'm all for love. <laughs> Happy World Emoji Day. <laughs> In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.